Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory for, let's see, the first public evening was in September of 1922. That was 99 years ago. But we're not starting our 100th season because for four years during World War II, there were no public evening lectures. So this actually would be the 97th year that we've been offering uh, lectures for the public. This is the first time we've been together in this room since March 2nd, 2020, was the last time we had a in-person lecture. But we also have people watching us on Zoom as well. In this age, we'll now be we'll broadcasting on Zoom as well as being here. So welcome back. We're back here at the university. Welcome to all of you listening to us on Zoom. Um, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, the telescope will be open for viewing. We've just trained and hired eight new undergraduate telescope operators. And we're also working on restoring the original lobby of Stewart Observatory, which served as both the lobby and the classroom from 1921 until 1960. And we're turning it into a visitor center slash museum. It's a work in progress, but if you go to the telescope, even if you don't walk up the two flights of stairs to the telescope, feel free to walk in the ground floor door. You can see we have several displays set up of antique equipment. We've put together a mock-up of what Professor Andrew Ellicott Douglas's office may have looked like. Eventually, we'll have flat screens with more uh, information on the current research that's done at Stewart Observatory. So it's a work in progress. But if you'd like to see, and you can see the original front door. We took down the plywood that was covering it up and you can see the beautiful door that used to be there. So feel free to look in at the end of tonight's lecture. Uh, tonight's speaker is, by the way, we have lectures set up. If you can see the schedule on the Stewart Observatory website, all of the lectures that we've set up. We have a couple more speakers yet to get for November, but right now we have speakers for September and October and December. So uh, without further ado, tonight's speaker is Regents Professor George Rigi. Professor Rigi received his bachelor's degree from Oberlin College, which is in Ohio. And then, yes, and it's known for its fine arts as well as science. And he then received his PhD from Harvard. And he has been here at the University of Arizona since the late 1960s or mid 1960s? 1970. He's been here. And he and his wife, Professor Marsha Riki, are principal investigators for the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, the, it's, as he'll tell you, the launch date's been announced. Uh, and we are big players in James Webb Space Telescope. So we have a theme this semester. Uh, every month there will be a talk about the James Webb Space Telescope from someone working on the James Webb Space Telescope team. So we're trying to heavily emphasize that topic this spring and hopefully it will culminate with a wonderful launch in December. Uh, at the end of the lecture, I see everyone's got their face masks on. Thank you very much. Those are university regulations. And uh, at the end of the lecture, we'll take questions from the audience here in room N210. We'll also take questions on Zoom. Those of you listening on Zoom, if you have a question at the end of the lecture, just type it into the chat and we will relay it to Professor Riki. So without further ado, Professor Riki.
who will talk about the biggest <laughs> telescope in space. JWST, how did we get here? So thank you so much for coming. And thank you for those who didn't come but are dialed in over Zoom. So JWST is the biggest thing that NASA has undertaken as a space science experiment for at least a decade, maybe even longer than that. So it, it really is a very exciting time. And like most big NASA projects, it's taken 20 years. So uh, those of us who have been involved in it have aged a bit during the process. So I want to show you how we got so involved in JWST. Tom just explained that we're really deeply embedded in it and we're really looking forward to the launch. So I wanna go all the way back and, oh, we're frozen here, Tony. It doesn't take much. Okay, ah. so we wanna talk about infrared astronomy. So we're gonna start at the beginning. This is the standard picture of Herschel discovering infrared radiation. This cannot be right. <laughs> He's sitting there with this air of contemplation and so calm. And let me tell you what he did. He didn't go get a prism. He stole a piece out of a chandelier. So, and at that point, in his household, he had a wife and a sister, and I'll bet he had to hide this from him. So he probably was not out there where anyone could find him. He was doing it kind of in secret. And he did this experiment to see how much energy came out of different parts of the spectrum from the sun. And you know, this makes it sound like he said, aha, there's energy over there. I can't see it. I have discovered the infrared. No, that's not how it works. He would say, what has gone wrong here? This experiment isn't working. In fact, he would probably say, scheiss, pardon my German. Was is loose? And he would start doing all kinds of things to try to figure out what had gone wrong with his experiment. And after a lot more very bad German words, he would probably say, it must be some kind of radiation I can't see. And this all happened in 1800. So, you know, this was right when the United States was sort of coming together for the first time. Uh, so this was really a remarkable achievement. But I do think the fiction of the German cuss words and so on has to be a lot closer to the truth than this picture conveys to you. So infrared was discovered. And so it's a form of electromagnetic radiation. Our eyes can't see it. The range in Herschel's experiment is indicated by that little double-sided arrow. But there's something wrong here again. If we go back, the arrow goes, here's where the infrared starts. The guy who painted the discovery of the infrared put the infrared off the edge of the picture. <laughs> well, this has been the history of infrared astronomy. We don't get no respect. However, we'll just take this as artistic license. 
But I want to point out, NIRCAM and MIRI, the two instruments that we're involved with here with JWST, cover kind of from the far end of the visible out to a wavelength of about 27 microns. So it goes a lot farther into the infrared than what Herschel was looking at. So why do we care? Here's a picture of a fire, a fireman with an infrared camera. You can see through the smoke and you can see a person there who's warmer than the surroundings. And so infrared can penetrate smoke and haze and also detects warm objects very efficiently. And if we put this in an astronomical context, then this is the famous picture of the pillars of creation. This is what it looks like in the near infrared. And just like you can penetrate the smoke, you can penetrate the interstellar dust and see what's inside those pillars and what's behind them. And if we go farther into the infrared to 24 microns, then you can see the dust that's been heated up, just like the person that was lying there in that picture. There's another reason, which has to do with studying the very distant universe. There's the Doppler shift that as objects move away from us, their lights get shifted farther and farther to the red. And so this is sort of a standard picture of what that looks like. And here is the kind of research that Professor Jovi Fan has pioneered to look at very distant quasars. This is a quasar at an age of about a billion years after the Big Bang. It is redshifted Z equals 6.13 says the wavelengths are shifted by about a factor of seven from where they started toward the red. And what you see, it's starting to really head into the infrared here. And there's almost no light. And that's because all of the hydrogen along the line of sight at lower redshifts has absorbed the light. And so as we discovered that there were objects at higher and higher redshifts farther and farther away, we also found that it, if we were gonna see any light from them, we were gonna to have to move to the infrared. Well, that was a problem until about 25 years ago, most astronomers thought the infrared was the realm of beasts and dragons. And it was only when people started to find objects at these very high redshifts that people realized that, darn it, we're going to have to go to the infrared after all. And so that's basically how the whole concept of the James Webb Space Telescope was invented. It was invented as the first white machine, meaning it would see really, really distant objects at really, really high redshifts. Okay, so that's sort of the start. But now I want to tell you about something you've probably been told over and over again, and I'm going to show you it's not true. And I'm going to emphasize this talk would be over in another 43 seconds if it were true. So well, I don't know if you're lucky or unlucky, but anyway, that's the way it goes. So what you've been told is 
technology drives astronomy. You, you invent something new, smart astronomers grab it and they make discoveries. And this is a little graph that Martin Harwood put in his book, Cosmic Discovery, it was published in 1984, it's just been republished. And the point is, if you look at these bars, these were in 1984, the current era, and it's the time after the discovery of the enabling technology until some ast major astronomical discovery was made with it. And you can see it took about five years. And that's sort of been the lore in astronomy that it's very quick between when the, you can make a discovery and when it actually gets made. So infrared astronomy really got kicked off in 1914 when Koblenz invented a very high performance for those days infrared detector and measured about hundred stars with it. So if we apply this five year interval, where would we have been? We didn't have a telescope yet. So <laughs> there's no way this would have led to us getting deeply involved in JWST. Okay, well, let's see what happened subsequent to that. I tried to promote a worldwide celebration for the 100th anniversary of infrared astronomy, but somehow it didn't take off, but we're now well past that. Others took up Koblenz's idea and they built even more sophisticated detectors along the same lines. And particularly guys named Pettit and Nicholson put these detectors on the 100 inch telescope and they were very sophisticated in how they did this. Down in the basement, they had a machine with a photographic plate and the output of those detectors, there was a light beam that went on the plate and they exposed the plate and the plate got driven so they got graphs of the signal from stars out of that device. So this is their photometry. This was on one detector, this is on the other detector. You can see the signal go back and forth. And this is very good photometry. Those who have done photometry look at this and say, wow, those guys were good. And in fact, this is a very red star. And the figures over here are with, a piece of water in the beam so that it blocks the infrared unless the visible light through. So there's a pretty faint red star and there's not much visible light, lots of infrared. You look at Vega up at the top and you see about the same amount of infrared, but a lot more visible light. So you can see how this was working. Okay, that's a start. After World War II, there were new and better infrared detectors, uh, lead sulfide detectors, and a guy named Felgut built a new photometer based on that. And he went observing. He had trouble getting repeatable signals, but in the end, and this is a really remarkable graph, this shows Felgut's lead sulfide measurement of the output of stars in the infrared and Pettit and Nicholson's measurement of the output of stars. Turns out they agreed to within 8%. That says each set of measurements was accurate to about 5%. Everybody here was actually doing very good measurements. And so oh, they should have, the, the field should have just taken off. 
but that didn't happen. Here's the history. Everybody who tried infrared quit and did something else. We have an unbroken record of quitters up here. And so that's kind of mysterious. So suddenly in the early to mid-60s, the field took off. And you might say, well, things got a lot more sensitive. No, they didn't. It turns out the key measurements were made with our 28-inch telescope by Harold Johnson. And because his telescope, 28-inch, was a lot smaller than the 100-inch Pettit and Nicholson had used, the sensitivity was about the same. There were some technical advances that helped some, but it doesn't seem to be really adequate. And it wasn't because astronomers got interested. Here's the score early in the development of infrared astronomy. <laughs> and it was all done by physicists. Okay, well, there had been a cultural change by the 60s because radio astronomy was a pretty big thing then. And that introduced the idea that if you went to new spectral regions, you would find really interesting things that had never been found before. So that was a start, but it turns out astronomers didn't have much to do with radio astronomy either. It was mostly physicists and engineers and just a few astronomers sprinkled in there for good measure. And I found there is this very strange editorial that appeared in the Astronomical Journal and Astrophysical Journal at the same time which is a really strange mark of the times that said, radio astronomers, we really love you. Please stop publishing in the electrical engineering journals and come publish in the astronomical ones. So things really hadn't got off to what now is a situation with everybody working in different spectral regions and merging the insights they get from the radio and what they get with the X-ray and so on. So it took 50 years, basically, for infrared astronomy to get going. Why? Can anybody have any ideas of what would make things develop so slowly? The Pardon? The no, it's something that one doesn't even think about. And I puzzled over this for a long time, but I decided it's that in the 60s, suddenly there were a bunch of groups. There were four different groups involved in this. There was the one here, there was one at Cornell, Caltech, and the University of Minnesota. And when I hit on this, it occurred to me, you know, that's right. If you work really hard to develop a new technology, you make new measurements, and you publish a paper on those new measurements and nobody bothers to read it, what are you gonna do? You're gonna quit, right? And so this is a funny kind of social side to science that scientists are pretty much blind to, but it really is a human enterprise where the interactions of scientists are really critical to making progress. So anyway, infrared got started 
And it really got started here because Gerard Kuiper founded the Lunar and Planetary Lab. And Kuiper, remember, was one of those quitters. But he didn't exactly quit the infrared. He just used it to study planets. And then he hired Harold Johnson. Harold was the one astronomer out of 12 who was very involved in the early infrared. So that started infrared astronomy, not here, but across the street at the Lunar and Planetary Lab. And at that point, Frank Lowe, hero worshiped Harold Johnson. And Frank was sent out here as the telescope scientist for the 12 meter radio telescope on Kitt Peak. But that was not producing any interesting measurements. And here was his hero for the Lunar and Planetary Lab. So Frank fairly quickly migrated into infrared astronomy. And as they say, the rest is history. So here's Harold repairing his photometer at the 28-inch telescope, which was absolutely key. Remember, these small telescopes, but they really played important roles because of the instrumental insight and the enthusiasm of these pioneers. Here's Frank Clove supervising his postdoc, transferring liquid helium, except at that point I knew perfectly well how to transfer liquid helium. The problem was the photographer wanted some vapor coming out of the door, which is exactly the sign of someone who doesn't know how to transfer liquid helium. So there I am memorialized, this was actually in the National Geographic, as being a hacker at transferring liquid helium or well. And the LPL, Lunar and Planetary Lab 61-inch telescope, now the Stewart Observatory, was the most sensitive infrared telescope for many years. And this is a selfie, can you find me? I'm coming through the door there to turn the camera off. And you can trace me with the flashlight trying to shield it. But this was the premier infrared telescope for quite a few years. And just to emphasize what the field was like, you know, in those 50 years, a lot had built up. And by this time, sensitivity had grown a lot. The fact that the 61-inch telescope was the most sensitive infrared telescope in the world tells you that we've gone way past what had been done on the 100-inch or on the 28-inch. And to illustrate that, this is a progress report that Kuiper wrote right as the 61-inch telescope was getting completed. Notice 12th of November, down here it says, well, we finally got things fixed. And we started doing observations on October 8th. So this is progress report one month after the first observations. And farther down this progress report, Kuiper reports that Frank Lowe had discovered the internal energy of Jupiter and I know because I inherited it with a very crude photometer, just bolted on this new telescope. I know Frank, he probably looked at Jupiter because the telescope didn't point well enough to find anything else. And there was a discovery. So the field was really exciting at that point. And that's because there were instrumental advances, but scientifically it had lain fallow for 50 years. 
Okay, so I'm sure some of you are saying, well, if the 61 inch works so well, why do we have to build a big expensive telescope and launch it into space? And the answer is, if you want to look at anything faint in the infrared, it's very hard to do it from the ground. And the reason is, infrared is heat radiation. And so you're all pouring infrared out. So are the chairs, the table, everything in this room, including a telescope. And so I like to say, trying to detect a star in the infrared is like trying to find a match in a blast furnace. And it really is like that because the atmosphere is glowing in the, in the infrared. And just like the flames and sparks in a blast furnace, the atmosphere isn't standing still. It's blowing over the mouth of the telescope. So you have this infrared signal that's fluctuating up and down. And you want to see this little star in the middle of it. And you can see why it's a big challenge. Well, you think, why not cool the telescope down and get rid of that heat radiation. Uh -uh. You would have condensation all over the telescope right away. So that won't work. The only way you could do it is put the telescope in space. Then you can cool it down and there's no atmosphere to condense onto it. And in fact, this is a historic picture that led to the concept of the Spitzer telescope. The first few infrared telescopes in space were built with the idea to make the telescope cold, you had to put it in a thermos flask, basically, a doer. And then you'd put liquid helium in the doer and that would cool the telescope down. The problem is the doer had to be vacuum tight, so it did have big, thick walls, had to be heavy. And this meant that the biggest telescope we launched into space was this big, literally. A little less than a meter in diameter, about a, a yard or even a little less than a yard in diameter. And Frank Lowe had the idea that you could get around this by putting the telescope in space, but building it so that it radiates its energy off into space. You didn't have to carry all that helium with you. And you didn't need the big, heavy, vacuum-tight case to put it in. And this actually saved the Spitzer telescope was the critical insight that allowed it to be built when there was, it was just politically very fraught with all kinds of difficulties to get funding. But there was a funny side to this. By the time Frank had this idea and we adopted it, the people involved in the Spitzer telescope were so paranoid from all the political problems that we refused to make the telescope any bigger. We were scared. And we just wanted to get a telescope. We didn't care how big it was. So we ended up with an 85 centimeter telescope, sort of 34 inches. But you get your cold telescope in space, and there's the match, right? The blast furnace is gone. So you can see why you really want to do that. The background is like 10 million times fainter. And so this is really the way to go. And there's been another huge advance, which is the invention and then development of arrays of detectors. Now we're used to digital cameras and you say, well, why is that a big deal? When, we, when I started, 
And all through the 70s and well into the 80s, we worked with single detectors. And so it was like trying to take a picture by taking a single detector and pointing it at each element in the picture and measuring at each spot in the picture, and then going back to your office and trying to figure out what it looked like. And so infrared detector arrays have been an incredible advance. And to show how big, this is one of the very early maps of the center of the Milky Way galaxy. This was made with a 200-inch telescope. It was with a single detector with an aperture of 15 arc seconds that was painstakingly scanned over three nights over this region. And to show you that infrared don't get no respect, the three nights were not awarded for this project. They award, were awarded to another a real astronomer at Caltech who gave it to the infrared group to make these measurements. This is the two-mass sky survey image of the same region, and it just scans really quickly. And this is a modern detector array. Same region, same six-meter telescope, basically the same size as the five-meter, 200-inch. And this is one hour of observation rather than three nights. And there are so many stars in that you can't separate their images. So this is way overexposed if you wish. So that's been another huge boost. And so here's what this has meant in terms of sensitivity. At a wavelength of 10 microns from the ground, not much. This is kind of shocking. Up, the two diamonds at the very top are the sensitivity of the 61-inch telescope as a function of year. Then I corrected those to what it would be if I could put the same instrument, if I could find it, on an 8-meter telescope. And so that's where the sort of the benchmark at the end of the 70s, and it just leveled out. And that's because we had reached the thermal background limit. We were limited by the photon noise of the emission of the telescope. At shorter wavelengths, the improvement has been a lot more, but you can see in the real infrared, it was even with detector arrays and not to say they weren't important, but the basic sensitivity on a single source in the sky was limited by the telescope. So the solution was to go to space. And here's, a, here's the first few points on the ground with the 61-inch telescope and improvements in the photometer. This is a logarithmic scale. So this is a factor of 10, 100, 1,000. <laughs> this is really steep. And time. And so this represents the astronomical capability of a European space telescope called the Infrared Space Observatory. No, I'm sorry, this is IRAS. This was a United States Survey Telescope. This is ISO, and this is Spitzer. And, you know, we're blown away by the rate of progress on computers. Computer capability doubles every two years, right? That's what we're told. 
This capability doubles every nine and a half months. And in fact, we continue this out to JWST, it's still doubling at the same rate. And so I was lucky enough to blunder into the field here. And I've enjoyed a doubling of capability every nine and a half or 10 months for 50 years. That's just incredible. Um, really been exciting. But there's more to it than that. Remember, I told you that because the telescopes had to go into thermos jugs, they were only so big. And with the invention that you could let the telescope cool by going into space, you can make the telescope as big as you wanted to. Well, as big as the guys giving you the money would let you, but you know, it's almost the same thing. So here is the size of the mirror versus time. And so here we go with these telescope, telescopes and thermal jugs. Here's Spitzer. Then we go way up with JWST. And that's important because resolution, the, the size of the smallest detail you can see, goes in inverse proportion to aperture. If you make a telescope 10 times bigger, and it's diffraction limited, you get a 10 times smaller beam. And so here's just an example. There's sort of Spitzer resolution. There's JWST resolution. And you can see what an incredible breakthrough that is. That's just as important now as the sensitivity. Spitzer was often limited by the resolution rather than the sensitivity it could achieve. And JWST breaks through that. And in fact, let's go back to this picture. The mid-infrared picture over there on your right, this was actually done with MIPS, the instrument that I led the development of at 24 microns. And I couldn't find this picture anywhere. I had to go dig out the information and put it together myself. And I think that's because the people that made these two felt sorry for me. Because look how fuzzy it is compared with these really sharp pictures. And in fact, the beam at 24 microns, the resolution with MIPS on Spitzer was six arc seconds. With JWST, it will be one arc second at the same wavelength. So you can see how much sharper of that part of the picture and how, how much more you can learn with that extra resolution. So let's summarize the space telescopes I've talked about sort of graphically. The bars here, their width is proportional to the diameter of the telescope mirror. And the bars start and end at the wavelengths that the telescope covers. So you can see here's poor little Spitzer with this narrow little bar. Hubble is up there with a slightly smart, larger bar. And here's JWST with this big fat bar, an aperture that's six meters. So it's as wide as, it's as big in diameter as this lecture hall is wide. So really big telescope. And it covers from sort of the far visible out to 26, 27 microns. 
And I hope I've given you some idea of why that's a really an exciting advance in capability. But it's not so easy to achieve that. I realized at one point that the weight of our, the tube, just the tube of our 90 inch telescope was three times the weight of the entire JWST observatory. Just a stunning realization. And that explains in large part why it is so hard to build this observatory. It has to be super precision in space and it has to be super lightweight to get it there. But here it is. This is a brand new picture and this is complete and ready to get shipped to the launch site at Karoo, ready to go. And it's hard for me to convey how you feel about this kind of picture if you've worked on this project for 20 years. This picture, I remember seeing a similar picture for Spitzer or actually seeing Spitzer in a clean room at Lockheed. And it seemed to me it was, all, it was almost sacred ground. There was this device that human beings had worked on for many years and tried to make it absolutely perfect. And basically no expense had been spared to make it perfect. And there it was ready to go into space. And I feel the same way about this. This also gives you a feel for when I say this is big. Well, this picture certainly makes that point. But remember when, when you put all this effort in and everyone has tried so hard to make something as perfect as human beings can, it really becomes kind of a sacred object from a scientific perspective. So this is going to get shipped to French Guiana, but put on a big Ariane rocket, which was NASA picked the Ariane because it is a heavy lift rocket with the best reliability record. And the last thing NASA would want to have is a rocket failure. And we're going to get launched and I'll describe that in a little more detail later. Meanwhile, building instruments for this telescope has been a Riki family affair. And just in case you didn't recognize me in the picture, I wore the same shirt. <laughs> so there we are. This is as close as we're allowed to get to the telescope, right? It's in a clean room. People are, again, very carefully moving around this. The last thing you want to do is say, drop a wrench and do damage to the telescope. So um, people were working on the sun shield then, which is this sort of aluminum foil looking thing spread out underneath it. And so Marsh's instrument is near cam. And this is what it looks like. This tries to identify all the parts There'll be a quiz at the end of the lecture. Uh, there are actually two near cams. We had the idea that you would build two identical instruments and you'd bolt them together back to back. And it turned out near cam plays a critical role because it takes the pictures that allow the telescope to be lined up and make good images. And the fact that there were two of them meant that there was a failure in one, you still had another that was critical for getting it selected to be built. 
I've talked about detector arrays. This is the little two by two mosaic of 4 million pixel detector arrays. And there are two of these sets in NearCam and then two other single arrays. So it has a lot of pixels, 40 megapixels. Well, those of you with infrared cameras, that doesn't sound very impressive. But let's just say it's like $20 million worth of pixels. Then that sounds more impressive. And I should say the metal parts were machined at the machine shop in the physics building. The array mount was built up and all the mounting of the array was done actually just behind me. Go through those doors and around the corridor and you'll get to the clean room where we did this work. And the guy that took the photo, Ken Don, was the leader in carrying out all the delicate work to mount these detectors. Okay, here it is packaged to be shipped to Goddard. It's mounted in a framework that carries all the instruments and here it's being mounted on the telescope. This is the mid-infrared instrument. And this one was a real management, well, turned out not to be such a big challenge. It was very interesting because it was built by a consortium of 10 different European countries, scientists in 10 different European countries, the Jet Propulsion Lab, and with some involvement from the University of Arizona. And that was the part that I led. So here it is. This is what the actual instrument looks like. And what turned out to be really challenging about this instrument is the detectors have to work at a temperature that is too cold to reach by just radiating out the space like the rest of the telescope. So it had to have a cryo cooler. And it turned out building this cooler was just as big a challenge as building the instrument. And so this is the team that finally succeeded and putting this cooler together and it's about to be delivered. It sounds exotic. It works the same way your refrigerator does. So here's a little diagram of the refrigerator. You have a compressor, you have maybe some fins in back that cool the compressed gas off. Then goes around, you have an expansion valve and when gas expands, it cools. Then it goes into the freezer compartment and the refrigerator goes from there. Our refrigerator is the same thing. We have a compressor. We have pulse tubes that cool it. We have an expansion valve, except this gets to six degrees Kelvin instead of, well, in, in your freezer, or it may be 260 degrees Kelvin. So it gets a lot colder. And there are a lot of other reasons, like it can't use very much power. It can't vibrate the telescope. There are lots of reasons this was very difficult, but it's done. And so everything has now been checked out. The instruments have been done for a number of years, but the rest of the telescope had to be tested and checked out. And so now what do you do? You've got this wonderful machine. What are you going to do with it? Now, first, I want to point out that we, and this is the globally, all the astronomers at the University of Arizona have 13% of the time in the first year of this telescope. And we count for well under 1% of the astronomers in the world, all of whom competed to get time. 
So we have a lot of time. So we better do something important with it. And in fact, I'm obviously not going to cover that in this talk. The series of talks that Tom talked about will go through. First, Marsh is going to tell you more about building this very complicated telescope. And then we have a series of talks where people will explain to you the different science they're going to use it for. And I hope you feel this is sort of a vicarious trip with the biggest astronomy space mission since the Hubble telescope. In fact, this is on the same scale as the Hubble telescope. So I hope you come along with us on this exciting journey. So the telescope was invented to look at way back when things were really different in the universe. And that was sort of called first light. It doesn't see that much farther back than we can see with the Hubble telescope. But the problem is, as we look back with the Hubble telescope, things don't change very much. Yes, astronomers will tell you it's dramatic what changed out there, but it really isn't. They're stars, they're active galactic nuclei, there's interstellar dust, the same stuff. But we know if you go a little farther back, it's gotta be really different. So we want to go a little bit farther back and find really what our origins are in terms of building up stars, building up galaxies, building up active nuclei, really get to the regime where things are different rather than just changed a little bit. And another major theme is planetary systems. And of course, other planetary systems have been the, the big new initiative in astronomy since 1995, when it was confidently predicted by all theoreticians that Jupiter was an anomaly. You'll never find another planet as massive as Jupiter. I went to a conference where they stormed the podium and made this statement. And a year later, they were shown to be wrong, although they never really apologized so well. And we now know of lots of other planets. It is true, Jupiters are a little uncommon, but we've found lots of them. And furthermore, we've found rings of dust around other stars. The first one was found around Vega, and it's like our Kuiper belt, but it was actually the Kuiper belt around Vega was discovered before we discovered the Kuiper belt. Now think about that. It was like five years later that we found that there were objects out there in the solar system. So this is Fomalhaut. This is now the Spitzer MIPS picture, 24 microns. I'm very fond of this picture, but this is what Miri will do. And what's important, this is the famous HST picture of this ring of dust. And this is now at high enough resolution that you can make detailed comparisons where I have to admit, it's kind of hard to do that with this is your starting picture. So we're gonna talk about those things and lots of other things that we wanna do with JWST. I say that we wanna do because after the launch, it's gonna take six months to check everything out and be sure it's all working right. So you're going to have to come back next year to find out 
I mean, next, not just next year, 2022, but fall of 2022 to find out what we actually did. But October 11th, Marsh is gonna tell you about how JWC was built and the challenges. October 25th, Christina Williams and Eric Slawin will tell you about what they wanna do from a NIRCAM perspective. Then Stacy Albers and Honors Gosper will give you a, what they wanna do from a MIRI perspective. And then Ginny Young and Figa Wong will tell you about what they're planning to do in terms of really high redshift quasars, which is another field that we have led the world on. So that's all in store. And I promise there will be more next semester. So we can't wait to get these measurements. So our former director, Ray Wyman, emailed me in 2018 and said, is JWST gonna get off on schedule? And here was my rather facetious response. But now we do know the schedule. Launch is scheduled for December 18th. And we're gonna be really, really nervous. And I hope you're nervous along with us. Go to church, pray, whatever. And in fact, I found this quotation from Michelangelo that kind of describes what NASA is doing here. It's that you do something really ambitious. Rather than succeeding at doing little insignificant things, you ought to do something really big and ambitious. And that's what NASA has done with JWST. And here is what Thomas Serbuthen, the NASA Associate Minister for Space Science, said about this launch. That we're doing things that are really, really scary. So he says, yes, be nervous. And so that's my parting thought for you. Please plan to be nervous for us. <laughs> Starting December 18th and going on for the six months it takes us to verify that everything is working right. So thank you. Did we get questions? Uh Right now, I don't see any questions in the chat. So we'll give people time to, uh, um, in fact, I'll bring up some lights here. Uh, we'll give people some time to uh, uh, type in their questions on Zoom. Back, I know from lecturing in this hall, that's back where the football players sit. We've got a question. We have a question right here. <laughs> George, great job. Uh, Stephen Fleming from across the street over in optics. Um, you and the team have done amazing things. You mentioned the uh, the mass budget in getting instruments like this to fold up into small. Your your volume constrained, your mass constrained, your power constrained, and and you've made things like this that are just astonishing. If what's going on with people like Elon Musk and people like Jeff Bezos really pans out, and launch prices drop by orders of magnitude and if you can suddenly build things and you don't care so much about mass budget don't care so much about power budget you have nine meter wide fairings what could you do next so we do get better at things we have better ideas but the kind of breakthrough that would let us just sort of forget about mass budget and power budget and so on i think those are still way out of reach uh, there is a sort of reality 
and you're up against that no matter, well, the Saturn V rocket that went to the moon. We don't know how to make another one. That's sort of symptomatic that, you know, it's not all incredibly rapid progress. There are some limitations. The detector arrays in the mirror instrument are another example of something that we couldn't replace them. We've lost the ability. So there's kind of an equilibrium and it gets better and better, but it doesn't get better kind of exponentially. So um, I think, I don't envision the time when we launch something that is as accurate as JWST, but is 30 meters in aperture or something like that. It's just, there are, there are some limitations that are pretty fundamental. Professor, as I understood, when this telescope is launched into space, it's gonna be someplace uh, beyond Mars or something like that. Is that, it's not going around there, it's not gonna circle around Earth. If that's true, if something goes wrong with this thing, as it went with Hubble originally, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to send anybody up to fix it. The second part of my question is, are you planning to go to French Guiana to see the launch? <laughs> okay, well, the, the second part is the easy one, no. Oh, good, because if, if something went wrong, you'd probably be, they'd probably so, send you to Devil's Island. I can tell you why we're not going. French Guiana has very few hotels. It's a sort of small beach resort and they're all filled up by the people supporting the launch. So you could camp, but French Guiana has crocodiles. <laughs> and I'm not sure I would sleep very well. Um, so the first part is much harder. And I remember explaining a much smaller but similar problem to the manager of my Spitzer instrument that this had to do with mishandling liquid helium and how you could create an accident that would destroy the instrument. He said, how are you gonna prevent that? I said, it's procedures. We have to teach everyone how to do it. And he said, no, no, what, you, what safety valves and so on are you gonna put in? I said, no, there aren't any. And he was a sailing fanatic. And he said, aha, it's like when you sail from Hawaii to the United States, you don't put, take any precautions or somebody falling over, overboard, you make sure it doesn't happen. And that's what we have to do. Because you're right, we can't go out and fix things. We've got to, this has to be engineered and tested so carefully we're confident it will all work. But I'll tell you the other side of that. You know, the Hubble telescope has had a number of failures. And a good friend of mine, Steve Mattel, is one of the world's leading power system engineers. And I asked him about that. He said, you know, the problem is when they built the Hubble telescope, they thought it would be cheap and easy to go back and fix things with the space shuttle. So they did not build things to the standard that they would have built a satellite that they knew they couldn't fix. So, there, you know, there's multiple versions of this. But yes, it is a worry. We don't want anything to break. And there's been a lot of effort to try to make sure that won't happen. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. 
Hi. Okay. Uh, so in the slide where you showed the wavelength ranges of like the Hubble, the JWST, and the Spitzer, I noticed that on the like sort of visible end of the JWST, it's sort of uh, cut off by like uh, the yellow spec portion of the spectrum. So it didn't it covered part of the visible spectrum, but not all of it. Is there a reason why you you like why like that specific portion of the visible spectrum was it like planned that way or was it just like an outcome of the rest of the design? Everything is planned. Um, those wavelengths are passe. <laughs> We've studied those for centuries more seriously. To do well at those wavelengths would have required that we introduce a new type of detector array. And so there was a serious technical reason why we, we stopped at about 6,000 angstroms. So that's in the sort of far red. And going to, we would have had to go from infrared detectors to something like CCDs, optical detectors, to have equally good performance at the shorter wavelengths. It would have also leveled a lot of other performance requirements on the telescope. So it would have made things a lot more expensive and difficult. Um, there is a hope that NASA will build UVAR, the ultraviolet optical infrared telescope, which takes some of the JWST technology and applies it at shorter wavelengths, but that's a whole new telescope new budget and new 20 year schedules. So I don't think I'm going to wait. We have a question here. Um, if, if you didn't have the uh, closed cycle refrigerator there, what, what kind of temperature could you achieve just by radiative cooling and shielding and so on? So most of the radiatively cooled areas get to about 40 Kelvin. With extra work, you can get to maybe 30 Kelvin. It's not cold enough. Initially, we had a liquid hydrogen doer. And boy, was that a nightmare. <laughs> um, liquid hydrogen, of course, burns rather vigorously if it gets exposed to air and you light a match. So there was a lot of safety concerns. There were a lot of concerns with that. So. There were, there were alternatives, they just weren't terribly pleasant. But we really have to get colder than just the rate of cooling. Any other questions? I will make one more check to see if there's anything in the chat. Nope. Someone complaining about the sound quality, we'll have to check that out. All right. <laughs> I will remind you then our next lecture, two weeks from tonight on the 27th, there's been a lot of talk in the news about UFOs, right? And the government, the Pentagon was forced to, to put out a report by the Congress. And there's a lot of stuff being said on television, which is really not true. And yeah, and so it, it's part of the duty of the observatory to also air some of these things. So we're gonna have Major McGehee here in two weeks, who's our local UFO investigator. He's gonna tell you what's really up with these so-called uh, 
well, sightings, these, th these, these uh, 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 infrared images taken from aircraft. And what they're really seeing, it's probably a case that the pilots themselves don't know what they're looking at. So um, anyways, we thought we'll have a talk about chasing space aliens. Uh, that's the talk two weeks from today. Please feel free, if you've never been to Stewart Observatory, the original building, it's the white building next door. Walk in, if you go up two flights of stairs, there's a 21 inch telescope and uh, our telescope operators will be happy to show you whatever they can that's up in the sky. Check out our new, uh, well, we're trying to turn it into a visitor center slash museum. You can check out our progress. That's on the ground floor of the building. And uh, thank you for coming and have a nice night. Let's thank Dr. Ricky again.